1: All right my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Corey Ganay. It's August 10th, 2021. We're outside the Nicholson Library on Lindfield University. Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, super happy to have uh, been invited to participate. Awesome. Let's start with the first and most important question. why wine?
2: I feel like wine picked me honestly. Um, you know, I grew up in Colorado and in a family that I mean, there was no drinking, no beer, no wine. Um, so did not, grew up around it. Uh, came out to Portland for college, uh, Reed College. Um, was a chemistry major there, and uh, uh, developed an interest in art, actually, um, through some art history classes. Uh, also met my wife through one of those art history classes. And um, it was through her family that I was introduced to wine. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember one of the first times I went to visit her family, you know, and said, I don't know anything about wine, and her dad opened up a few bottles of, you know, red wines, and poured them all out, and, um, uh, you know, what are the differences? I couldn't tell the difference between any of them. You know, they all seemed the same, just like red wine. So, um, I really, um and it's sort of late to the game uh as far as wine goes and um really started from started from scratch
1: so you've mentioned a little bit of this already but take us kind of through your upbringing you mentioned co- growing in mm-hmm. colorado um tell me about kind of life growing up and, and what made you decide to come to Reed?
2: Uh, yeah um growing up um very outdoors oriented um, hiking and camping, fishing, that kind of thing. I um, uh, was a good student in high school and um, kind of got to senior year and the college counselor said, you know, what are you thinking about as far as places to go and I hadn't honestly really been thinking about that much, someplace in Colorado, CSU, CU, um, she said, well, I put together a list of colleges that might be interesting for you. And um, so she put together the whole list, and um, the very last one on the list, we we're going through it. She said, "I put this one on there, but I don't really know you that well. So, but there is this school in in, in Portland, Oregon. And it's kind of a strange place. And so, as soon as she said that, that's the one that's like stood out. So, um, uh, didn't go visit the college, you know. Got in, showed up in the fall, and started going to college, you know? Um, uh, having uh, now done two girls, two daughters, through the college process, one's currently at U of O, um, boy, a lot more went into it for them than it did for me. Mine was pretty pretty random. Um, but man, uh, ended up at a great place, um, worked really hard, played really hard, um, and wound up with a degree in chemistry. Which I wasn't really expecting to do. I thought I was going to be a biology major, but just really liked the the chemistry department, and I was kind of good at it. And uh, I'd never taken chemistry in high school, even. So it was uh, kind of a shocker. Um, But uh, during summer breaks, when my peers or getting jobs, summer jobs, working in labs um, in preparation for grad school or medical school. Um, I went home to Colorado and had jobs working for the Forest Service. So I would spend my summers um, backpacking around the, the wilderness areas above Aspen, Colorado, um, taking high alpine, um, taking samples from high alpine lakes uh, as part of an air quality monitoring project. Uh, so that was um, that was a pretty great way to spend summers, and honestly, that's kind of what I visualized myself doing: was mm-hmm. trying to graduate and then maybe get on permanent with the Forest Service, mm-hmm. maybe do like summers with the Forest Service and winters with the Aspen Skiing Company, you know, do that kind. of mm-hmm. I didn't have any kind of like master plan, um, but second semester of senior year, uh, met my wife and. Um, and things changed, plans changed. So, ended up coming back to Portland. Uh, uh, we got married, uh, had, our, had our first daughter. And um, uh, I was originally pursuing potentially a career in art conservation. The idea being combining my interest in art with um, my science background. Mm-hmm. But not a lot of that happening in Portland, um, and pretty daunting to move the family to the East Coast for grad school. And um, so uh, had kind of a mini career exploring that. Um, and then we made the decision to move down to the Bay Area to be closer to her family. And that's really when, um, uh, when I connected with the, with the wine industry.
1: So before we talk about the connecting with the industry itself, yeah. I mean, you mentioned kind of your first experience with wine, wine the beverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you in, was there anything about that, or at what point were you excited about learning more about wine at all, or was that not until you thought about the industry further? Yeah.
2: I, mean, I think the thing that really was, um, piqued my interest was that my wife's grandparents had retired in the Loire Valley in France. And the family would go there um, uh, basically every summer since she was a kid. Mm-hmm. And part of going there was making visits to local sellers. And um, uh, I don't speak any French. And so um, I wasn't understanding all of the conversation that was happening, but just the experience of going to a winery and having the person that is, you know, is really proud of what they've made. Um, you know, taste you through their their products and show you their seller, And mm-hmm. obviously, they're um, a lot of uh, a lot of history, mm-hmm. it's sort of an older situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably where um, uh, where I where I first kind of started to formulate this. Okay, if art conservation isn't going to work out. Chemistry and wine—it seems like there might be something there. Yeah.
1: So now you're in the Bay Area, yeah. uh, obviously another a whole different, whole different kind of wine country that down yeah. there. Uh, tell me about coming into contact with the industry and kind of your first initial impressions and, and interactions.
2: Yeah, I remember we would uh, do—we'd um, go to do, do wine tasting with um, with our parents. Um, you know, they were uh, wine club members at different places and uh, that sort of thing. Um, I was super naive about the the wine production process. I really didn't know anything about it. Um, and actually to kind of back up a little bit. Um, uh, when I first was looking at making the switch to the wine industry, we were living in Portland, and uh, I remember you know going down to the Reed Computer Lab and getting on the email and our internet and found like a Willamette Valley wineries uh, list of wineries and um, just sort of sent an email to everybody, you know, hi. I don't really know much about it, but <laughs> I have a chemistry degree. Is that useful to you? And um, uh, two people replied, actually. Um, Amy Wesselman, uh, who is also a Reedy, and she was nice enough to uh, meet with me for coffee and kind of talk about um, lab work and what wineries need. And, um, uh, and the other person was uh, Sam Tannehill, who was at uh, Archery Summit at the time. And he invited me up to Archery Summit and had a, a similar chat. And all of this was happening in like late November. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, so, you know, if you'd reached out to us three months ago when we were looking for, you know, people for harvest, mm-hmm. would have been great. Mm-hmm. But we're at the time now where we're, you know, letting people go. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, I, just, I didn't really understand mm-hmm. anything about the industry. Um, but during the conversation with, uh, with Sam, he's like, well, if you're interested in chemistry and um, the chemistry of wine, uh, then you should, you should look at getting a job with ETS Laboratories down in California. And I said, oh, OK. And I honestly didn't write it down or anything. So I'm like, OK, they're in California, and I'm up here. So <laughs> um, but as it turns out, when we moved down to California, and I started looking for a job down there, Applying to wineries to be a lab tech, um, ETS also posted a job, and um, so I got hired on with ETS. Um, I guess it would have been 2000, 2001.
1: Tell me about that job, and tell me about your kind of initial impressions of the work being done there.
2: Uh, oh, it's great. I mean, it's just a you know world-class laboratory. Um, uh, really, really nice people working there. Um, I hadn't really spent a whole lot of time doing lab work. You know, I'd done some in college, but I'd never had had like a job in a lab. Uh, So even though I had a chemistry degree, it was kind of a steep learning curve to learn the, you know, all the lab tech um, uh, type tasks. But, um, you know, I was Familiar with instrumentation, and um, so I got trained on a bunch of different analyzers. And um, uh, it was at the time when they were developing what has now become a real workhorse analyzer for the industry, which is made by a company called Foss. And it's called the WineScan, and uh, it was an instrument that was originally developed for the milk industry, doing milk analysis. I think this is right. And um, then Foss was working with ETS and Gallo uh, to kind of develop it for the, mm-hmm. for the wine industry. So that was really interesting to participate in kind of the early stages of, of that analyzer. Um, but the thing about working at the, the main lab in, in St. Helena, uh, as an analyst, um, yeah, I was interfacing with with wine and wine samples as just slices of the sample. Mm-hmm. Like the tests that were my responsibility, I would go get the sample tube and take my little aliquot and do the analysis and you know, the data in the computer and then keep going, you know? But I would never see like the final reports. You know, I wasn't I wasn't seeing the big picture of what was what was happening. I could tell that it was important because lots of winemakers are going through there and we're getting lots of samples. And, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't talking with any winemakers, you know, and I wasn't um, kind of interfacing on the level of uh, why people run analysis.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so during that time, um, the Davison's here in town who had developed a winery supply division had outgrown kind of the temporary space that they were in and decided to build a new building Mm -hmm. to house their winery supplies operation. And they had the foresight to allocate space in that building for analytical services, Mm -hmm. which is something that local winemakers had been asking for, right? And, um, uh, The Davisons reached out to um, uh, the couple big labs in California at the time, and the owners of ETS said, yeah, let's do it, that sounds great. And um, uh, I basically raised my hand and said, I'd be happy to go back to Oregon and participate in that. Um, So the first harvest doing that was 2002 but it was in the old winery supply building because the new winery supply building construction was delayed. So we did the first harvest technically in 2002 in the old space, but we weren't really doing a whole lot. Um, 2003 was really the launch of, of that ETS satellite lab.
1: What went into it from your perspective? Uh, what I mean, you're going from kind of working as one of many in a lab to sort of setting up a whole new space. So, so tell me about that challenge for you.
2: It was a, it was a steep learning curve. It was, um, you know, I was in basically way over my head because I didn't, I didn't know anything about the winemaking production process. I didn't know why people were submitting samples and when they were submitting samples. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the language of winemaking. That was a big hurdle for me, actually. Um, I remember that first harvest, you know, um, it was great because we were in the Winery Supply building, so people were constantly coming into the building they'd come over and introduce themselves and ask about, you know, the lab and how it worked, have little conversations and I remember somebody saying, um, yeah, I think I'm going to go pick fruit, you know, next week. I was like, oh, that's awesome, what kind of fruit are you going to (laughs) get? No, I really said that, you know? And they're like, oh, we're getting grapes, we're gonna harvest the grapes. So is that real kind of, that disconnect from being a lab technician and oh. just running analyzers hmm. to interfacing with owner winemakers. Hmm. And so, the, good, the nice thing that happened is that they didn't know much about using the analytical services, right? And so it ended up being a situation where we were kind of teaching each other, you know? Mm -hmm. People were teaching me about winemaking and why they were interested in the numbers, Mm -hmm. teaching me the language. At the same time, I was helping them understand why it was valuable to spend money to get numbers. Mm -hmm. And so it was this nice kind of teaching each other thing that. That happened, Um, but uh, I was definitely in over my head.
1: (laughs) At the time, do you remember? Was there were there certain certain numbers or certain tests that they were that were were most important, or most that people were coming in for the most? Were were there certain things that people were most excited to know?
2: Well, it was interesting. You know, um, yeah, people would come over and, and introduce themselves, and I'd say. ETS we love you guys you guys are fantastic you know whenever i have a problem with my wine i send a sample right down to you and it's like okay that's great that's one of the services that the lab can offer but the more important service that the lab offers it allows people to be proactive mm-hmm. in their production process so that they avoid problems mm-hmm. So it was this this shift in mentality from, I use the lab when I have a problem, to I use the lab to avoid problems. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of that really was convincing people to spend money on juice analysis and running full juice panels mm-hmm. where you get a complete picture of your raw material. Um, you know, people were used to running TAPH bricks in-house. Mm-hmm. But why do I need to run, you know, potassium? Why is that important? You know, why do I need to know how much malic acid and tartaric acid is in there mm-hmm. if I already have a TA number? So why should I spend you know why do I need to spend hundred bucks to get those numbers? So that was a big part of it. Was really trying to to, to shift people into thinking about the lab as um, a tool that allows you to make informed winemaking decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and ETS came up, did a lot of did seminars and um, put a lot of effort into into that. And people latched onto it, mm-hmm. you know, and. They embrace the idea that okay, I've just spent many months, grow many months and many many dollars growing my raw material. Now I've got it. The extra cost of a sample to find out what you have to work with and what adjustments can be made need to be made. It's super important. Um, so that for me is really the was really the the biggest thing that 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 lab did for people was um, providing providing juice analysis. Mm-hmm.
1: Did you find from people who were working with you that you kind of brought over to the side of doing this analysis and getting, getting the numbers and being proactive, did you find people reacting that it was making a difference in the finished product?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it's... You know, people have been kind of trying to operate kind of blind for a while for for many years really and once you start to kind of see how the numbers stitch together right the juice panel numbers translate into your finished product and where you end up once you see that happen and you start in hitting product that you want to make at Mm -hmm. the end Mm -hmm. because you knew what you were starting with at the beginning then it becomes very quickly an indispensable thing you know i think if you ask most winemakers now if they would you know try to do a a harvest without a without knowing juice panel numbers i think very few of them would say yeah sure no problem taph bricks it's fine Mm -hmm. and a big part of that is that it it you know it allows people to do what i'm most interested in which is to which is to make a sound wine every time mm-hmm. every time you're controlling the basic quality parameters of the product and you get that pinned down mm-hmm. and once you get to that point then you can start to really work on the stylistic goals mm-hmm. But if you have something that's a moving target already, then trying to apply stylistic type decisions, Mm -hmm. there's lots of different products that can be used. Your your barrel program is huge. All these stylistic decisions, if you're trying to pin those to a product that is really variable, Mm -hmm. then what ends up in the bottle is going to be really variable. Mm -hmm. Maybe sometimes you hit it just right, maybe not. But if we can pin down and make a, a clean wine, start to finish, mm-hmm. my feeling is then it allows people to really dial in stylistically what they want to, what they want to show.
1: So you, tell me about your initial impressions, obviously you're still learning wine and you're still learning terminology, you're still learning all of that. What were kind of your initial impressions of Oregon's industry, of the, the people in it and of, and of the wines being produced?
2: Uh, everybody was so friendly, um, talking about the people. Um, very friendly, very excited about the, uh, the Davison building, very excited that ETS was up. Um, uh, uh, very clearly a, collab- a collaborative mm-hmm. industry, people working together. You know, again at the time when I was in the Calif- in California in the Napa Valley, I wasn't interfacing with winemakers, so I can't really speak firsthand about what it was like down there. But um, you know, the other thing I do in addition to the labs, I rep for a French cooperage, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I remember a friend, one of the one of the cooperage reps coming over, we're touring around, visiting people, and he was just like, "This is you know this." Community up here is just unbelievable. It's like it's so great. I'm like, yeah, isn't is? Don't you see this other places? Because he goes around the world, right? And he said, no, this is very unique. It just it just doesn't really exist in the same way. This mm-hmm. sort of collaborative spirit. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't here at the beginning, obviously, so I don't really know. But you know, I'm sure a lot of people that you've interviewed have talked about how important that was. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the wines that were being made, um, it was. The days of unfined unfiltered and um, so there was a there was a lot of variability in what happened in the bottle mm. um, uh, unfortunately you know um, plenty of times people would come in with bottled samples that you know were re-fermenting or whatever and so it sent a fair number of samples down to the main lab for Figuring out what was going on in the bottle. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that made a big impression on me actually, because that's, it's, people were so discouraged by that. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've done all this work, it's in the bottle, and then it goes sideways in the bottle. Mm-hmm. So, again, getting back to my interest in mm-hmm. helping people control those quality parameters so that what ends up in the bottle is, is clean, sound, mm-hmm. isn't going to go sideways. Mm-hmm. Even if you do want to do unfined, unfiltered, mm-hmm. you control the parameters so that it's probably going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a big one, a uh, big hurdle to overcome. And then the other um, impression I have from the wines then was that uh, you know, particular cellars kind of end up with having the same, each year, there'd be the same problem. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. And for me, winemaking is all about, um, I mean, there's never going to be any expert winemaker because there's just too many variables involved and you Mm -hmm. just don't get enough chances to make your product Mm -hmm. to develop a real level of expertise. But what I think the really good winemakers do is as they're going as they've been going through the process, they encounter some problem, some issue, and they figure out why it happened and then they change their systems so it doesn't happen again. And then the next thing comes up and you solve that, it doesn't happen again. And then you get to a point where then you can really you know, you've kind of You've seen these, the primary things that can pop up and figure out how to control them. And then you can really start, you know, consistently making, um, uh, making great wine. But the point is with that, that I could see that, that, you know, there was a little, there was kind of this disconnect of um, thinking about wine as a production process.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's like any other product, you know, in that coming out of ETS, we had very, you know, strict written protocols for how you do, you know, written quality assurance system. Mm -hmm. And if you have that or something, some version of that in your winery, then it does allow you to, as you encounter issues, you you can make changes to your system and set those changes in protocols or checklists or whatever. Um, so part of that was ETS, but part of it was also when I was exploring the art conservation world, I was working for an artist oil paint manufacturer in Portland called Gamble and Artist Colors. Um, and they developed a line of conservation paints. And, um, but I was coming out of that produ- a production environment and it was a production environment that was a kind of a single day turnaround. You know, you'd show up in the morning, you have raw oil, raw pigment, you
3: mm-hmm.
2: have to get it mixed, milled, mm-hmm. through the tube filler, labeled, and ready to go out the door. So you know, is was that, I was coming out of that sort of production mentality of protocol based, you know, mm-hmm. um, environment. So when I left ETS, a big reason I left ETS was to get involved more directly with wineries, mm-hmm. to try to offer that service to people of not only helping them with their own in-house labs, but helping them develop quality assurance systems mm-hmm. and to think about wine as a as a production process. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really fun to do, yeah.
1: Well, before we get to that, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about Sort of, you mentioned people were pretty receptive to the, to the idea. Did you find people, did you find many people in the industry who were already there, or, or was the chemistry kind of missing from the industry at that point?
2: As far as the, the lab work went, there were a handful of winemakers, as I recall, that, or wineries, that had uh, pretty decent in house labs. Maybe even had like an enologist on staff, or at least a lab tech on staff, and um, uh, and basically had this more or less the same capabilities as what the what our lab had. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there were there were some sellers that were definitely already up to speed on mm-hmm. on. Um, Uh, on lab work and using lab work proactively but those are typically the medium to bigger wineries Mm -hmm. um, where they could have this differentiation of Mm -hmm. of people and responsibilities you know they could have kind of an org chart as opposed to the smaller wineries owner winemaker maybe an assistant trying to do sales and marketing as well trying to do the business side of things as well most of the time in those situations the lab work was maybe something that mm-hmm. didn't get kept up on. Mm-hmm. The other thing with doing lab work if you're a small winery and it's really challenging is that um, you're not running labs every day. Okay, our lab, we're running samples every day. So we're, our analyzers are always working. We're always, you know, we're watching our quality control samples and
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, we we know how the systems are behaving. We can, we have, we have systems in place to know if an analytical system is starting to go out of control. Mm-hmm. We can fix it. But if you, if you have an SO2 apparatus in, in your winery, and you bought the reagents for that, and you pull samples and you run them, great. And then you don't come back to that apparatus for another couple months, and the reagents have been sitting for a mm-hmm. while.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The apparatus, maybe it's a little dirty, you know. You don't have a written protocol, so you have to try to remember like how to do how to run it. Mm-hmm. No quality control sample, which is super important. So you can you can run your samples and you're gonna get numbers. But how do you have confidence that those numbers are accurate? Mm-hmm. Any analytical system, you you run a sample, it gives you a number. But the trick is, how do you know that those numbers are accurate? And so early days with ETS, this was a big part of the conversation with people, is they would come in and they would say, you know, they bring in a sample, SO2, I'd run it, send the report to them. The next day they come back. Yeah, you ran that sample and you didn't get the right number. It's like okay, um, you know we can certainly recheck it, but you know why? You know why do you why do you think my number's wrong? Well, you know I ran that same sample and I ran it three times in house and I got the same number every time. Okay, that's great. You know um, that repeatability is what you want in your system. But just because you get the same number three mm-hmm. times doesn't mean you're getting the right number, the accurate number, three times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then oh, many, many light bulb moments like that. But you can appreciate that if, if, if you're a small winery you don't have access to analytical, like an outside independent lab to check against, mm-hmm. and you don't have some sort of a control sample to give you feedback on if your system is giving you accurate numbers, mm-hmm then that's what you would default to. You would run it, would run it multiple times mm-hmm. to see if you were getting the same number and think, okay, yeah, I've got the right number. Mm-hmm. So with something like SO2, people could end up thinking that they had 30 parts of free SO2 when actually they had 10 parts of free SO2. Going into the bottle, okay, if you're at 30, that could be enough. Unfined, unfiltered, that could be enough. you going in with 10 parts, unfined, unfiltered, that might not be enough. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely, um, there was a, definitely this process of, of people testing me out um, and wrapping their mind around this notion that their, their in-house numbers may not be accurate.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
2: So some interesting conversations along those I lines. I imagine but. so, yeah.
1: So you talked about um, kind of the, st- the steep learning curve of wine and terminology and numbers and, and all of the things. So how long did it take you working to feel confident and comfortable talking about sort of wine at that level with people who were in the industry? How, how, how long until you felt comfortable with the vocabulary? You
2: know, to be honest with you, I've, I've resisted being comfortable with it. I mean, I just really have, you know, I really have always tried to take the um, the position, which is the 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 right position, which is that the, the wineries bringing in samples, those winemakers, you know, they're the experts about their process and about winemaking in general, and um, I've become conversant with it mm-hmm. over the years. Mm-hmm. I can. Pretty fluently speak the language, but I always defer to winemakers as being the experts, you know? Yeah. I can talk about numbers and how numbers can inform the decision making process. Um, but even with my work when I was consulting for wineries, helping them develop these written quality assurance programs, it was me interviewing them. And just writing down their process
3: mm-hmm.
2: and asking questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, you so say you do it this way, but you know, can you explain more of that? And where does that come from? And so the idea being really to try to help people pin down their own process. Um, uh, it's one of the actually one of the challenges. of, We've got a, a Linfield intern who starts tomorrow, nice. and another Linfield in intern that starts. Next week, awesome. Which is great, um, uh, but that is one of the—that's one of the big challenges of having the interns come in, and because we're a small lab, they could very well be the ones that go to receive the samples from clients. Is how do we try to bring them up to speed on some of the kind of nomenclature and? Um, abbreviations that people will use on their sample labels that helps, you know, with login, logging incorrectly, mm-hmm. um, uh, some of the language. Um, the interns will al- learn a little bit of that, but really the, you want know, to have new analysts doing the lab, um, depending on how familiar they are with the winemaking process, it can take a little bit of time to, to learn the language. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I have a question from the audience. Okay, great. Um, What does it take to be a chemical analyst, and do you need a chemistry background for it?
2: Um, For the work that we're doing as an analytical lab, um, I'm actually more interested in, um, when I'm looking to hire people, I'm more interested in if people have uh, experience working in production. Um, I love people who have experience in um, food service. Food service experience is, translates fantastic to the work that we do at the lab. Um, Fast paced, mm-hmm. attention to detail. Um, a science background is necessary. You know, I need, I need a, a, a basic familiarity with being in a lab and basic lab techniques and, um, uh, but everything that we do in the lab is completely trainable. Um, one of the things that my, um, <clears throat> the two people who are my lab techs now, my analysts now, fantastic. During COVID times, and coming off of the smoke year last year, where winery production was way down, it hasn't been as busy at the lab as we were expecting. It's natural. But one of the things that they've spent a lot of time doing is working on the written protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, because we had some basic ones, but um, honestly, a lot of times they wouldn't get used. and. Um, uh, They've really done a great job building those for us, and now with the Linfield interns starting, it's going to be our chance to test those out mm. and to actually, um, you know, uh, see how quickly we can bring somebody up to speed using very detailed instructions on on how to run different different methods. Um, so the other thing that I'm most most interested in honestly, with uh, um, hiring people or people that join the lab is people that reach out to me, you know? Um, Both people that are working now, Jason and Christine, they both just reached out to me. I didn't have a job posted or anything, and they showed interest, and they seem like great people, and, you know, we Mm. found a place for them. Mm. Uh, So that's one thing, talking to, to young people, people who are especially just getting ready to start careers and that sort of thing. I always encourage people to just reach out you know, to businesses that look interesting and talk to people. Um, don't wait for people to, to post an ad. You know, Reach out and talk to
1: people. Absolutely. So you talked about kind of ending your time at ETS and going in different directions. So tell me how long at ETS and, and when it came time to leave, how how formulated was the plan at that point when you decided to leave ETS? How formulated was your next step?
2: Um, yes, yeah, so I worked for ETS from basically 2000, 2001 to through the harvest of 2009. And after the harvest of 2009, um, then I started my own business, which I called Coronology. Um, and uh, it was, you know, I've been thinking about about making a change for a couple of years at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the startup of the satellite lab was great. And, you know, it was uh, new clients, and um, I was learning a lot, and they were learning a lot, and we were kind of building the thing. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, it got to where we'd kind of signed everybody up. Mm-hmm. You know? And so then it became just running samples. Um, which um the laboratory is not exactly my natural environment um and you know that coupled with seeing how people you know were needing help potentially with their own in-house um uh, processes and, and labs um it was a hard decision obviously i mean anytime you you leave a um uh an established job um to start out on your own with a, with something that's never been presented to people before. OK. Coupled with the fact that I'm not exactly a self-promoter. <laughs> that's not something that is in my skill set, really. Um, but a handful of people signed up. And um, uh, I'm really proud of the work that, that we did for, um, I guess it was, yeah, five or six years. Um, uh, helping people get their their production processes documented. Um, some yeah, it was it was really very successful. And during that time, while I was doing that, I was also repping for mm-hmm. this French cooperage, mm-hmm. Denolery de Mercure, um, which is something I just fell into. I wasn't looking for that, but um, Rick de Ferrari, who has Oregon Barrel Works, uh, knew that um, knew that. Mercury was looking for some uh, help repping their barrels in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. Went to Unified in Sacramento, met with our general manager, and um, again, I didn't know anything about barrels, but I knew a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so they were willing to kind of like bring me on board and give me time to, to kind of learn how barrels worked. Um... Yeah, so, you know, left ETS with kind of a plan, but mm-hmm. really just wanted to get out there mm-hmm. and just see what, see what, um, uh, where, where I might fit, mm-hmm. um, yeah.
1: So let's talk, we'll talk about chronology first, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'm curious, as you were presenting to the initial clients, as you were kind of seeking those first people, what did you offer? What did you present yourself as being able to do and, 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 and was that actually what ended up happening? Did, did, or did it, did it change in the process?
2: Um, I would say that yeah. Um, basically what I pitched to people is what we ended up doing, which um, was uh, kind of a, a fixed monthly fee for me to help them for me to do the work, really, to create the documentation um, for a. To, to capture their production process, their unique production process, slash help them with their labs. Mm-hmm. So introducing like a quality assurance sample, quality control sample, um, which We've always used Franzia bag in the box. Makes a fantastic control sample. Um, So introducing some laboratory concepts, Um, um, but also then the the, um, yeah the side of it that was related to creating the quality assurance system was uh, was really an interesting process because it would um, it meant bringing everybody together and talking about the process together. And you would find these disconnects. Like one person would think it, they were doing things this way and the other person thought they were doing things this way. And so then we'd have to reconcile that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, so there was a, one of the other hats I wear is I, I serve as a volunteer mediator mm-hmm. for uh, your community mediation here in McMinnville and um, which I love, but the process of working with wineries, there was a lot of mediation involved. There was, you know, we definitely got into relationship territory and internal politics and sorting a lot of that out. Mm-hmm. So in addition to just like creating documents, it was also great for me because I felt like I was really helping people with the the culture of their mm-hmm. their place. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty exciting. So. That part of it i didn 't necessarily expect, but I really liked um, I did get into writing like OSHA programs for people and helping mm-hmm. people improve their OSHA programs that 's not something that I was anticipating doing, but um, uh, it was clearly something people needed and kind of was a nice thing to transition to after we'd kind of done the production mm-hmm. protocols um, yeah, so I you know part of me um, if, I, if this opportunity to start my own lab hadn't kind of materialized out of nowhere, then I'd probably still be working with, with wineries and, and mm-hmm. different wineries, more wineries. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little bit, you know, bummed isn't the right word, but um, it would have been interesting to see like, how many people I could have worked with. Mm-hmm. And um, we could have kind of kept that consulting model going.
1: Um, almost like a wine psychologist that point
2: honestly yeah i mean it kind of um the, yeah i mean it's the winery Winemaking making is so dynamic um, it's such a dynamic production process uh, the culture of every every winery is different and so that was always really interesting um, uh, interesting for me to see kind of the culture of the winery and then also see how Really, the culture of the place translates pretty directly into the bottle. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting, especially, you know, owner winemaker. The owner winemaker's kind of personality and approach and the way they decision making, that really does end up in the bottle. Mm-hmm. It's neat. Mm-hmm.
1: We've heard that recently that, that tense wineries make tense wine. And, uh, yeah. and, and I like that. It sounds, sounds like that's your experience as well.
2: Yeah, I think so. And vice versa, too. Yeah, wineries that are more more nonchalant about the process, and you know, they end up with wines that are that are not tight. Um, and so, for me, as far as like pinning down the process, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily looking to try to shift people to change their culture, mm-hmm. right? Just trying to tighten it up so that they're making consistent wines. Mm-hmm.
1: When it came to exploring winemaking processes at that level um, that's that's a pretty kind of unique thing for you to kind of dive into that many wineries and get down to the very nitty gritty did you find that everyone was different were there were there similarities across wineries that you were seeing or was every production process fairly unique
2: it's this kind of wonderful thing about winemaking that everybody's doing the same thing but There's so many little decisions over the course of the annual cycle that have to be made and it's all those little decisions that add up to pretty big differences in the bottle. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot of flow charts actually to capture the the process and kind of everybody's flow chart looked more or less the same. Mm except for just little differences, you know, in the flowchart. It's something for, you know, people who are looking to get into winemaking, younger people, um, really encourage people to try to work at as many different places as possible. Uh, See as many different styles, see as many different approaches, see different equipment, see different scales of winemaking, Um, The work I did with consulting for wineries, owner winemakers, is that was the other takeaway is I could see how people, at a certain point, you get locked in. And once you're kind of a brand or once you're like the head winemaker, uh, it becomes difficult to try to change things up. You know, people can do some trials, and, but to really try to change the way your approach to winemaking at that point mm-hmm. isn't, isn't super easy. So getting a diverse exposure to different, um, uh, different facilities, styles mm-hmm. early on so that when you become the winemaker or you start your own label you've got a pretty clear idea of what you do and don't want to do. Um.
1: Yeah. Love that, that's such an interesting perspective. Um, Wanna talk about the other thing, you talked about uh, b- barrels, barrel sales mm-hmm. at Cooperage. So again, you can't mention kind of falling into that. Uh, how long did it take you to get up to speed and, and what were you finding as you were kind of learning about barrels and learning, learning about people's uses of them that maybe surprised you?
2: Yeah, I mean, sort of, You know, the theme of my my career in the wine industry has been just getting in way over my head <laughs> on every job. You know, the lab here, way over my head. Um, barrels, way over my head. Um, barrels is super interesting um, as a consumer. You know, you see the label, and it says um, whatever, 30% new French oak. That new French oak is a huge range of different barrel options. So it's this it's this really interesting part of winemaking that. Um, is kind of impossible for a consumer to appreciate. You just Mm -hmm. cannot appreciate that until you get into the cellar and you start tasting the same wine in different barrels side by side. Um, And again, I wasn't going back to when my father-in-law put the wines out and they all kind of taste the same. I was still kind of in that mode, you know? Um, uh, The lab, we don't taste the samples that come through um, we would drink wine at home, but we weren't necessarily like, we weren't trying wine side by side. Mm-hmm. And we just didn't have that same level of understanding that winemakers have, where they're so close to the product and they can see the really, my, you know, small differences, um, between different barrels. So, same thing. At the beginning, it was, they all tasted the same. So I pretty much just tried to shut up and just listen to how people were talking about barrels taste and try to, like, try to make those connections and trying to understand what Mercure was trying to accomplish with their range of barrels. Um, Historically, with Mercure, the first barrels that came to Oregon were um, fairly heavy-handed. Mercure as a cooperage grew out of a stave mill. In France. So Nicolas Tartere and his wife Carol, um, Nicolas, uh, his parents had the first sawmill in the Champagne region. So Nicolas and his brother grew up in the forest, seeing trees being felled, seeing them go through the sawmill. So they're looking at trees from kind of the intrinsic qualities of the wood. Mm-hmm. They get older. Nicolau's brother starts a flooring business, a flooring mill, making wood flooring, and Nicola goes into staves. Shortly after he'd started a stave mill, the staves have been seasoned, they have been re- they were ready to sell the Coopers. There was a big freeze in Bordeaux. I think I have this right. Big freeze in Bordeaux. So the Coopers aren't making any barrels, because the winers aren't making any wine. So Nicola's got all this stave wood, ready to go, and he went to, came to the U.S. and toured around, asking if anybody here was, you know, needed staves, and I think went to a winery, a big, big California winery, and they said, well, we can't use staves, but if you made barrels, then we could buy your barrels. I think I have the story right.
1: Um, It's a good story either way. So I reached out (laughs) to a small
2: cooper in the village of Mercure, and had a winemaking consultant that was kind of coaching on toasting and this sort of thing, and they just started, and you know, and then these barrels started coming to Oregon, and um, some people really liked them, some people really didn't like them, and um, uh, but Mercury is, is a really, I think, a really neat cooperage because of this background in the intrinsic qualities of the wood, and. So they've, they've never emphasized forest of origin, which is very common um, with barrels. Um, they've never done that. They've always um, created blends of wood mm-hmm. based on the intrinsic qualities of the staves. So grain tightness, but also color, aroma, terroir, you know? So in a forest, you've got a range of different growing conditions for the trees in the same forest. Mm-hmm. But they know exactly where the tree came from, right? And so they can mark that and separate that wood out during the stave production process. Mm-hmm. The key to this is that it allows Mercure to do these really, really beautiful light toast barrels. So if you take a normal blend of, of, of staves that you might use for like a medium, medium plus, heavy toast barrel, the wood itself doesn't necessarily matter so much because you're applying such a heavy toast to it. Mm -hmm. It becomes more kind of about the toast, right? But if you try to apply a light toast to that same blend, the characters that come through might not be nice, you know, coarseness, greenness, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're selecting the right stave material, very high purity, the right type of terroir and you apply a light toast to that, then you get these barrels that become not on top of the wine, but actually are more supporting the wine and just amplifying the wine. And so people uh, in the last five or six years have really gravitated to these barrels, especially for Chardonnay, perfect for Chardonnay you know, where you don't want barrel impact, but you do want the barrel to organize the wine, um, amplify it, present it. Um, and this all happens because of um, the expertise uh, in the forest and in the state mill. Mm-hmm. So that's been super fun to, to help, to give people that option. Because mm-hmm. um, previously, and I think this is true of like, of Oregon wines kind of going back is that generally they were pretty barrel forward. And I think once I sort of understood barrels, then I started to understand that, um, and, and here, this fatigue with growing this beautiful fruit, shepherding the wine through the process, right? And then ending up in the bottle, and then what you taste is a barrel and people want to taste their wine.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's been a fun part of, of, of doing the mercury barrels for me.
1: You talked about the, the shift you've seen in the, in the past few years in that, especially, especially here, especially with Chardonnay. Um, are you As you're, as you're in kind of engaging with people who are talking about barrels, do you find changing opinions in general? Do you find a lot of varied opinions? Do you find that Oregon is fairly in lockstep? Or what, what's, what's the kind of the status of the industry?
2: Yeah, I feel like, um, as far as barrels go, it feels like people are starting to operate on a pretty sophisticated level. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, working with different sizes of barrels, and I'm gonna expand it actually, and you know, say also working with concrete vessels, Mm -hmm. and really large oak vessels, Mm -hmm. and um, you know, the industry continuing to embrace innovation, and these different tools that are out there. So, and that same with uh, oak adjuncts, you know, staves and chips and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the people getting a, a level of sophistication where, okay, the vineyards are pretty dialed in at this point, right? Um, Wine making is getting pretty dialed in. Mm-hmm. And now people can really start to do this fine-tuning with these different options that are available. And that's super fun to see people do that, because I think most winemakers have a, they have kind of a vision for what they're hoping to achieve in the bottle, what, you know, what they want to drink, what they want to present. And um, uh, so seeing people experiment with all these different types of tools to achieve that it's it's fun to watch Mm -hmm. yeah and participate in
1: so you mentioned the the opportunity for your own lab uh, came up at some point so let's let's talk about that and and getting that going
2: yeah that was not on the radar at all Um, you know like I said I'd kinda done the lab thing and I I was happy to be you know building this consulting thing and you know building the barrel thing mm-hmm. um, after I left ETS, I was also doing consulting for the Davisons for the winery supply and helping them with their a little bit with their laboratory products that they sold um, uh, that sort of thing so you know the Davisons was hu- they were huge for me when I moved up here because i didn 't know anybody and um, uh, and we're trying to start this lab and they're super helpful in getting things set up and um, so I've always had just a really great relationship with them and really love them as a family and really love that they stepped up and put a lot of resources behind offering this to um, offering the winery supplies and the lab to uh, to the industry. So um yeah when it was announced that uh ets was leaving the building well of course it's i mean that's what the model is the model is uh wine wine making supplies and analytical services Mm -hmm. that's that's the model so there really was no um question that we had to find um, we had to find somebody to, to put a lab in there so we reached out to the Other big lab in California, uh, Vinquery, which has now been purchased by ETS and doesn't exist anymore. Um, And because Vinquery was owned by Anardis, and Anardis has winemaking products, which Davison sells. So it seemed like a natural thing. Mm -hmm. But they didn't, uh, this was in, let's say, May of 2015. So May of 2015, and we need to have a, a lab up and running by harvest. Mm-hmm. And it's a blank slate. You know, all the stuff is gone. It's just two drains in the floor where the sinks go, and that's it. So they they passed, um, and we thought about a couple other options, but in the end, it was like we just need, we just need to do this ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you know, Chronology Analytical Services is a partnership between myself and the Davison family. Um, uh, and it was just this really crazy, crazy scramble to try to create a lab and have it up and running in time for harvest. And it was an early harvest that year. It was like, I think people were picking fruit now, you know, early August. And um, um, hired a, nice, a great team of um, of techs that were super great at kind of rolling with this craziness that was happening. I mean, I remember like first day of work, they're showing up, and yeah, the, the counters are being installed, and. You know, but also the the tech is there to install our wine scan and so they had to put in a counter to put the wine scan on. It was, um, but they were great and rolled with it. It was, it was honestly not a fun situation, that first harvest. Um, Very, very stressful. Um, But man, the the industry was so generous Um, and people came out and, happy to see, happy to see the lab in, super supportive, Uh, kind of rolled with our startup wonkiness. You know, we didn't end up invoicing people for like a couple months because we didn't get the invoicing side of it set up and (laughs) it was just crazy. Um, But little by little and, and all the techs that have been there, all the employees that have been there, everybody has contributed to that lab and we just have over the years we just got just kept getting better and better we just kept improving things and mm-hmm. things would come up and we would fix it you know if things would come up we'd fix it and so now where we've arrived is COVID times and we go to the system where you know one person works in the morning one person works in the afternoon I come in the middle part of the day I come in at the end of the day to overlap a little bit but for the most part, it's just one person running the show. And they're great. Mm-hmm. Systems are all in place. OK, something's always going to come up with analyzers. You know, you roll with it. We have redundancy and all that. So um, and it also, with COVID, it has allowed me to kind of extract myself from the lab. Um, and say, you know, they've got it. I don't need to be there running pHs. I should be working on bigger things. Mm -hmm. Like, what are the next things that we're gonna do as a lab? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been a real silver lining with COVID has been forcing me to just stay home and stay out of there and let let these really talented people Mm -hmm. do their thing.
1: Once you got up and running and once you got through the first harvest, did you find, obviously you'd been out of the lab for a little while at that point, did you find that much had changed in terms of winemaker demand or knowledge or sort of buy-in to what you were doing?
2: So the biggest thing when we decided to launch our own lab is that we knew we wanted to do a different model. So we wanted to offer the same tests, but we wanted to package them differently. And so what we embraced was a pro- an approach that emphasized running full panels on every sample. To incentivize this, we created a pricing structure that, to run a full panel, only costs a few bucks more than to run a single test.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So if you want to run a malic acid, I think it's like 22 bucks, something like that. Or you can run a full malic panel It's like 27 bucks. And this stems from some frustration with being in the previous lab where people would come in, they bring in samples And because they were trying to save money, they would just run malic acid. The analyzers show us all the numbers. So we run the sample, we see all the numbers. But we're only gonna give you malic acid. But we can see, okay, the VA is climbing on that sample. But they haven't bought it, so we're not showing it. Guess what you is. That to me was really important, was to, was to give people a full picture of every sample so that they could really see how the numbers stitched together over time. Um, the other thing is that from working in wineries and helping those wineries, um, sometimes helping them collect samples, mm-hmm. collecting a sample takes time. You know, it's a time-consuming task, especially if you're talking about barrels or... People put a lot of time and effort into getting the sample to the lab. And so for me, the thought of running just one, you know, giving them just one number, doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So that was, um, that was actually a thing that we had to kind of tune people into was that, hey, we've got a different structure to our pricing. For a few bucks more, you can just run the full panel, and we'll show you all your numbers. Um, doesn't affect the turnaround time. you know Our turnaround time is about half a day, usually faster than that. Um, and so once people latched onto that, um, uh, the uh, People were very receptive to that, yeah.
1: Well, we've talked a little bit about 2020 already. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. talk about, a bit more about it from a couple of different perspectives. I'm very curious about the second part of the year, but I'm gonna talk about the first part of the year first. You mentioned COVID. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about, as COVID hits last spring, um, sort of immediate personal, personal and or professional reaction to it. And what were the changes you had to make in the kind of immediate aftermath to, to make the business work and to get through the year?
2: Yeah, so I think the, you know, this, this is where um, also doing barrels was interesting because that barrel decision happens in the early spring
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so um, it was interesting to, to be having conversations with people and they were like, they're trying to gauge what how this thing, this unknown thing, is going to impact their business, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, do they really want to commit to buying barrels Mm -hmm. when they don't know how the pandemic is gonna play out? Um, And so definitely saw a scale back Mm -hmm. in barrel orders. So that was the first part of it for sure. As far as the lab went, it didn't really affect it because the samples that were coming through were the previous vintage, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? That's kind of what people were working. They already had the wine, and so they kind of needed to keep it going, right? Couldn't really pull the plug on it and just say, we're not gonna, we're gonna just abandon this wine. Mm -hmm. So the samples stayed steady um, uh, through the fall. Um, and because generally speaking, people were able to kind of pivot to some interesting ways to sell wine and, um, a lot of people, uh, you know, had decent sales during COVID and felt pretty positive. So going into last harvest, honestly, we were feeling, um, pretty good, even, even though we were, it was COVID time, we really were expecting it to be a a very, very busy harvest. Which it turned out not to be. But.
1: So tell me about Harvest and and your sort of your perceptions of it from your from your side, and also your role in it. Obviously, in you know, a kind of an unforeseen situation.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was hard to watch. Actually, um, watch our clients have to, with the smoke and the uncertainty, to. M- Have to make some really big business decisions really quickly with very little information. Mm -hmm. I really felt for everybody that was going through that, and everybody was going through it, you know? Um, Yeah, I think that's what was so unique about it is that it just affected everybody, Mm -hmm. and everybody was in the same boat, and nobody had any information. And so that was, uh, that was really tough and um, then of course I felt badly that as a lab we weren't able to offer that information, you know, we weren't able to give people numbers. Mm-hmm. Smoke analysis um, is well outside of the model of what we're trying to do. You know, this thing of like quality assurance. Mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, ETS buying VIN query, wasn't available. Um, ETS was backlogged. Um, some other companies launched smoke analysis. I heard of people sending samples to Australia. Um, there was real kind of desperation for numbers, um, but they just, you just couldn't get the numbers mm-hmm. in time to, to make decisions using those numbers. Mm-hmm. So um, it's something that I'm looking forward to kind of, as the dust settles, hearing how it worked out for people. Um, COVID-wise, we haven't been doing barrel tastings. Um, I haven't, I've chosen not to go into cellars to do barrel tastings. So that's typically where you kind of talk about the vintage and that sort of thing. So hopefully next spring, we'll kind of cycle back to it and hear how. hear how 2020 kind of played out for people. Mm-hmm. People now are still trying to, you know, work on making sure the wines are clean and and sellable. And um, I've been making a point of anytime I see a 2020 wine on the supermarket shelf, you know, pick it up and give it a try. And so far, everything's tasted great. Mm -hmm. So I'm personally cautiously optimistic about it. Um, And uh, since we all know what happened, um, I think we have a natural bias to maybe look for this impact, but I'm not sure that the average consumer is gonna, that it's gonna be a, a, huge, a huge deal. Having said that, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to, to taste through the range of, of impact, so I know that some wine was very clearly like, not fixable, and that's too bad. That's too bad. But really the, um, you know, watching people go through that process, us being geared up as a lab to have a big, busy harvest didn't happen. And then not being able to say yes to people when they wanted to mm-hmm. bring us samples for smoke analysis. That was kind of a bummer, but um, I do want to be careful as the lab grows that we kind of stay within our, within mm-hmm. our model. We'll see.
1: So there's no intention in your mind of adding smoke analysis to what you're already doing then?
2: Not at least for the, not, not in the near term. Mm-hmm. Um, getting into those types of analyses um, becomes a, a different animal. Mm-hmm. The lab becomes a different animal. Um, and it's, it's something that's in the back of my mind, but really right now I'm more interested in taking our model, which has been really successful, and has helped a lot of people, I think. Mm-hmm. And how do we get those services out into the world? So that when these, when these events happen, again, going back to this making a clean, sound wine, mm-hmm. OK, then when things come up like uh, smoke or um, different types of vintages or whatever comes up, things are always going to come up, at least what you're working on is something that has a good foundation, mm-hmm. you know. You're already working on a, on a, on a sound wine, mm-hmm. And then you can work on the other things, you know, to, to make sure that what's in the, what ends up in the bottle is something you're proud of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: We talked about your initial impressions of Oregon wine earlier. I'm, I'm curious, in your time working with the industry, what have you noticed that's changed? Uh, what are the biggest changes you've seen, and, and kind of what does the industry look like now in 2021, especially as compared to your initial impression?
2: Yeah, I mean, as the it's, I think it's sort of what 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 you expect with um, an industry that's growing, growing and getting older. Um, you know, the people, really the people who were dropping off samples when we first came up, they were the owner winemakers. That was who I was interfacing with. And that certainly is still happening with new wineries that are coming in, but, uh, you know, those, those wineries have become really successful. Uh, and have grown, and some of them have sold, and the teams have gotten bigger, and which is just is super great to see. You know, your friends kind of achieve <laughs> that that level of success after knowing how hard winemaking is um, uh, as a as a process, as a business. Um, so that's, that's obviously super satisfying for me to, to see and feel like I had a, a part in yeah. helping them achieve that. Um, you know, still see younger people coming through. Wow. I love that. Um, interesting, to see, interesting to see what the, the Linfield program kind of mm-hmm. becomes and, mm-hmm. and how, uh, how younger people are prepped to contribute to the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, um yeah, for me it's, I think, just, it's it's just really satisfying to see everything kind of so dialed in um, and to see, uh, you know, talk a lot about like, talk about like individual wineries and, and their success, but really all along, um, everybody's been working on Brand Oregon, mm-hmm. right? And the lab was always a, I think was a, a really big part of that, of, of helping Brand Oregon elevate. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to have everybody um, have their quality up. Mm-hmm. To bring the whole brand up, mm-hmm. the bigger brand. If some people are doing fantastic quality, but other people are not doing good enough quality, then that's always going to hold the bigger brand back. And I feel like Oregon has done a fantastic job of getting to that threshold where it's really, really unlikely that you're going to get a bottle of Oregon wine that isn't at least a clean, Mm -hmm. sound Mm -hmm. wine. -hmm. Stylistically different differences, but the prospect of getting a bad bottle of Oregon wine, I think is—I just don't—I—I really never expect that to to happen if I'm at a restaurant or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, We just bought a place down in Texas, and uh, this little town—they've got a small wine shop. Went in there and talking to the person in there and. Yeah, you know, I work in the wine industry in Oregon. It's like, "Oh man, everybody comes in here. <laughs> all they want is a Lama Valley Pinot." <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's stuff like that's huge. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been so much work done to build that that bigger brand. Um, uh, it's really, yeah, really phenomenal.
1: Pause real quick. Yeah. So, the other question I'm curious about, and that sort of the changes in the industry uh, obviously, a lot of new buildings, a lot of new wineries, a yeah. lot of new spaces. Yeah. Uh, when we see them, we see a lot of lab spaces. We see a lot of people working in labs and a lot of enologists on staff and things like that. Is, is that something that you've noticed as well? And is that something that you have, you know, is there, is there a c- contribution from your side there as well in, in, um, in uh, consulting or in, in helping people get those things set up? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: unfortunately I've had to um, turn some people down as far as consulting goes because I just don't, I just don't have time to do it anymore. Um, I feel kind of bad about that. Uh, um, But, uh, you I think there's a lot, there seems to be generally more kind of formal training in the local industry now. Um, People in the industry who have had uh, more formal winemaking training. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we first came up here, uh, it was very much kind of people teaching each other. Uh, that's fine. Um, but wineries have always needed to have their own in house capabilities. You just can't submit every sample to the lab, right? You need to have, you need to be able, for me, you need to be able to. Um, uh, you know, run pH in-house, um, check your free SO2 in-house. Um, have a good way to monitor fermentations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so a handful of analyses I think are really important to have. And then you can add on to that based on your size, um, how interested you are, if you have space for a lab, um, this sort of thing. But. So the independent analytical labs also serve the purpose of being that check to make sure that your own in-house lab is getting accurate numbers. So just because people have their own in-house lab doesn't mean they completely abandon running Mm -hmm. samples through us. Mm -hmm. Um, That's always gonna be an important part of what we do. And in fact, I encourage people that whenever they submit samples to us, it's a great time to also run it yourself, to see if your in-house stuff is is matching up. Mm-hmm. Um, we started going with. Uh, we're, we've been this past year. We did a, a kind of a trial project with a bigger winery where um, so they reached out to me about. You know, we're thinking about getting um, a spectrophotometer, doing in-house enzymatic analysis. And do you have any recommendations on what what we should get? And and I uh, was so like, well, you know, I could. Give you some ideas, but you know, I've always had this idea of offering kind of a fixed rate, mm-hmm. uh, flat flat monthly fee package for for wineries, uh, bigger wineries, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we just finished up a year of doing that, and it was great. You know, it made it really easy for them; they could just bring us samples, and some of the stuff they were checking in house too. But the bigger things. Um, uh, bringing us samples, and um, so I'm interested to maybe explore that more with other people. Because um, even if you're a medium-sized winery, uh, it can still be challenging to, as people cycle through different techs cycle through, and it can still be challenging to to make sure that those um, the lab is generating accurate mm-hmm. numbers.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, something new that we're kind of Kind of working on
1: mm-hmm. always something always something
2: yeah uh, yeah it seems to be that's the way it works
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what about as you look ahead for the oregon wine industry what uh what as we eventually hopefully come out of a pandemic here uh what does the industry look like in the upcoming years is there anything you're sort of looking ahead to or forward to and conversely anything that you're uh, fearful of as you look ahead for the industry Um,
2: I think it's. I honestly don't do much like looking too far in the future. Um, uh, my experience has been that, yeah, there's been a lot of growth and a lot of new people coming in, but winemaking seems to really just attract um, interesting and talented people. And so. Sure, the industry has grown and changed, and uh, um, um, but the people that are coming in still seem like they're 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 nice additions to the industry. Um, you know, investments in new facilities and investments in vineyards. Um, uh, I think it's nice to see. Um, be interesting to see how McMinnville and the area are affected by that. Um, uh, my wife owns the bookstore here in town, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so we participate on Third Street, and the businesses on Third Street, and uh, you know, people need places to live. Um, so for me, it's kind of about the wine industry, but I think about it more in terms of like the. The, the bigger community mm-hmm. and how uh, we navigate uh, livability. Um, I think that's going to be super interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, before we talk about your own future, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. You, you brought up uh, the other thing you're doing, men- as if you have all this time for all this spare time for extra things. You mentioned your mediation work. Mm. I'm curious how that came about and, and what uh, sort of work you're doing with that.
2: Yeah, um, uh, Yeah. Me, I was first introduced to mediation when a, a buddy of mine um, had to go to Small Claims Court. This is Portland, many years ago. And uh, he's like, do you mind coming with me just to go through this process? Uh, I was like, okay, sure. And um, went and was my, my friend and the other party and then the court mediator so the idea being that it goes to mediation first. If it can't be resolved in mediation, then it goes to the judge. And um, so I was just an observer, just watching, and it was just this fantastic process of this mediator like kind of navigating this dialogue and and facilitating the dialogue and um, letting people's emotions go a little bit and bringing them back in and and then you know meeting in the middle and. And the other side got exactly what they, you know, exactly everything that they wanted, compromise. Mm-hmm. But everybody left, and they were done with it, and move on with their lives. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that made a big impression on me. Um, so when uh, when we're getting to where our, our daughters were, high school, college, okay, empty nest is on the horizon. Mm-hmm. What are you know? What are you going to do? Uh, because we've always been really family-focused. And um, and kind of remembered mediation, and so did some Googling, and McMinnville has a, you know, a mediation organization. Reached out, and, oh yeah, we have a basic training session coming up, and the first time I reached out, it was, the session was in October, right during harvest. I couldn't do it, but a year later, I think it was still actually during harvest, but I like made it happen Um, and went through the training and uh, I've just sure have been trying to practice ever since, you Mm -hmm. know I mean? Mediations are just practice for the next mediation. Mm -hmm. Um, Ended up doing a lot of small claims court mediations, which have been on hold because of COVID, which has been kind of a drag. So haven't really been doing hardly any of it for however long, 18 months. But hoping that we can get over this hump and kind of get back to, um, to doing more of it. Um, do you yeah, find, I love it.
1: Do you find do you enjoy it?
2: Yeah, it's, yeah, it's really satisfying. I mean, it doesn't always work. You know, sometimes, you know, small claims people's differences are, are too far apart. And, um, but sometimes you know help people do like a lot of hard work. And, and we've done some you know, family mediations that are like that, mm-hmm. where you, know, you have to unpack a fair amount of stuff to kind of get to like, what the, the conflict is, and you know, that process can be, be really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, keeping it all kind of mediation-based, not like I'm not a professional psychologist or psychiatrist or therapist or anything like that. Um, but just helping people have conversations and fix things, kind of on their own, mm-hmm. it's satisfying.
1: And you have all the winery mediation background already, exactly. so you're way ahead of the game.
2: I would. I'm curious. I I would be interested to do, to do mediations in the wine industry. Actually, um, uh, you know, I know certain things. Certain things come in, in all businesses, but you know, there's some interesting relationships in the wine industry. Uh, the Grower winery um, relationship that's something that's always kind of being navigated. Mm. Um, I feel like we could, YCM could be useful to for people having those conversations, especially in the smoke year. Um, uh, but fortunately, you know, a lot of the feedback I got from wineries was that people just recognized that you know what, this is a, a long term partner, the vineyard we're gonna, we're gonna do the right thing. Whatever those people decided was the right thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I heard a lot of that, like uh, wineries stepping up and being, you know, we're, we're gonna share in that, in that loss. Um, I thought that was really cool. Um, I'm not sure that would happen in, in other places.
1: So, what's look ahead for you? Then uh, you mentioned uh, a, a, bought a place in Texas. That's a that's a bit of a life change there. Uh, tell me about what's coming next for you. Uh, what, what are you looking forward to in the future?
2: You know, for me, um, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to watching the the two um, analysts that I have in the lab now continue to improve and finding ways to. Um Kind of keep their talents going, uh, and like I say, trying to find ways to uh, get our model into the hands of more people mm-hmm. so uh, what we 're exploring now is the possibility of um, of taking the model to other places um, uh, obviously be a, a big project and um, becomes something much different mm-hmm. uh, to have remote labs mm-hmm. but it's been so satisfying watching watching this industry embrace embrace the model and watching it really help people mm-hmm. um also not a big fan of like having people send us samples a lot of people send us samples from a lot of different places but you know from a i don't know carbon footprint do the right thing, kind of standpoint. Yeah, I don't know. Shipping samples isn't the greatest, so maybe we can like, you know, maybe we can do little satellite labs around and and just sort of stick to our model and not try to get, not try to be huge and sophisticated, just be small and sophisticated. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, nothing certain, but we're working on some stuff and um, uh, you know, certain things have to fall into place just right. Um, uh, but I'm also looking forward to having less on my plate so I can do more mediation and and stuff like that.
1: All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered?
2: I feel like we covered just about everything, yeah. Um, I think my story is probably similar to a lot of people's stories and how they wind up in the industry. It's kind of can be sort of serendipitous, and um, but uh, no, I appreciate you guys doing this whole thing. Uh, like I said, scrolling through the list of people that you've interviewed and seeing names of people that are no longer with us um, is, you know, that's a great service mm-hmm. to to have that captured. And um, uh, so I love what you're doing. Yeah. Well,
1: thank you so much. We appreciate that. You're appreciate welcome. you taking the time and coming and joining us today. We will go ahead and let you off the hook. All
0: right, sounds great. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.